Before we dive into today's episode, just know that we tackle some big topics, including grief, loss, and the loss of a family member. If any of these topics bring up things for you, please reach out for help. Here in Australia, Lifeline do extraordinary work and can be reached on 13 11 14. On with the episode. Indira Nardu is one of Australia's most popular broadcasters and authors. Spending time with her for this conversation was an absolute highlight for me. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life podcast. During her 30-year award-winning journalistic career, she has hosted and reported for some of the country's most distinguished news and current affair programs, including the ABC TV's Late Edition and SBS TV's World News. And she's currently the host of ABC Radio's Weekend Nightlife. A few months ago, I was shopping in Kmart and I saw this book on the shelves that just pulled me in. The book was called The Space Between the Stars. I then went on to read this book. And whilst the year is only halfway through, it is one of my absolute favourite books of 2022. It's a book that Kate Sobrano calls life-changing and David Wenham says tender, touching and at times bloody funny meditation on life and death and how to live. Indira's world was shattered a few years ago when her younger sister died suddenly. Grappling with heartbreak, an unnoticed universe of infinite beauty wove through Indira's grief and led to her exploring how nature can heal. From stargazing to tracking ants to cloud watching to jumping in puddles, Indira invites us into this world. This conversation was filled with delight as we navigate the world of heartache and grief. Like watching the subtle movement of the trees and the moving of the clouds, I invite you to sit and soak up this conversation with Indira Nadu. Indira, it's lovely to be connecting with you. Absolute joy for me as well. Thanks, Ellie. There's a number of things I, I want to dive into with this conversation, but let's start with a little bit about your story. So I understand you were born in South Africa um, and grew up in Tasmania. Tell me a little bit about your story. Well, we were, well, most of my family, uh, my middle sister was born in Zambia, but most of my family are from South Africa. And because of apartheid, uh, which was the sort of racial discrimination uh, structure uh, in in that country for many decades. My parents had had very limited opportunities. So as soon as they were ready to go to university, there were no universities for them to attend as non-white students. So their parents uh, sent them to India. And when they came back with their qualifications, they couldn't work as teachers and dentists because of the same apartheid. So it began a uh, life, really, uh, of our for our family of constantly moving and looking for more opportunities and and places to live where we'd be accepted. So that was really a large part of my uh, childhood. We lived in five different countries by the time I was 13. And one of the countries we uh, were in, one of the states uh, that we ended up in, in the mid-70s, 1970s, was Tasmania, of all places. And we came straight from London. So I was a six-year-old a sort of hard-bitten, you know, Londoner and hadn't seen open space really or any sun for most of my time there. So landing in the east coast of Tasmania was extraordinary. What an adventure for a little kid. Uh, kangaroos and wombats and, you know, Tasmanian devils, the huge backyards, eucalypts, bush rock, amazing light and sun. It, it was an extraordinary time uh, to, to be uh, sort of discover Tasmania. And the three of us, because we moved around a lot as a family, we were much tighter, I guess, than a lot of siblings probably would be. Only a year between each, three sisters. And that constant moving meant that we were leaving friends and family, but we were the constants in each other's lives. And it led us to have more and more adventures because of that. So we were our own sort of famous five. I talk about it in the book. Uh, in the morning, our parents would basically say, as as a lot of pa- parents did in the 70s, 
uh, we don't want to see you till dinner time. And out the front door you'd go. And that was really what would happen. And then we'd go hiking and cycling and climbing trees and swimming in the creek. And that really was, you know, the very, now I look back on it, the very fortuitous way that we grew up as kids. And that early connection to nature really started in that Tasmanian sort of outback um, wilderness and in a lot of ways it has stayed with me but maybe buried a bit deeper and the last couple of years it's been bubbling to the surface and especially during lockdowns when we were restricted and what sort of area we could explore. I only had five kilometres like a lot of people around me in my inner city suburb of Potts Point And I had to dig deep to try to find the wilderness, even though it was only five kilometres of this urban, what a lot of people would just think is concrete and tarmac. But I discovered all these other beautiful parts of nature. And I think it was that early experience in Tasmania that enabled me to see the beauty in these little bits of discarded nature that we don't often see in our, in our cities. So, yeah, that, that um, wandering upbringing, I think, uh, always has certainly um, been the basis of, even though I'm an early urban dweller, it's remained the basis of, of who I am, uh, very nature-connected, um, enjoying the open space and the outdoors, and, and it is a large part, I think, of where the idea for the book came from. I can really picture, I love that kind of wide-eyed, um, from London to Tasmania <laughs> to the wide open spaces. Um, and as you said, you you know, you and your two sisters, so you were the oldest of, of the three and being sent out and told, we'll see you once once it gets dark, go exploring, yeah. um, to really kind of take that. And with no other distractions, we see it in kids, but I think as adults, given the same you know, unrestraint. We, we, you just have to find adventures, and there are things that you see that you wouldn't have noticed, except if you're out exploring adventures. Did you find, as the oldest, that you were kind of um, the driver of those adventures, or did the the, the three amigos kind of um, did that kind of come as a package? Yeah, look, I think I was really the driver. I, I was the the bossy eldest sister, and I would come up with the idea. And I was very spoiled because I had two willing followers that would, you know, climb up that tree with me and get on the back of the skateboard and do all the crazy things uh, that I would come up with. So uh, I don't know why they were so trusting because a lot of them did end up in little accidents and incidents and cuts and bruises and those sorts of things. But, yeah, we were our own, I describe it in that book, our our own um, sort of posse, our own group, our own gang and we didn't really need many other people, you know, um, because three is that beautiful number that you can have a fight with one of the sisters, but there's always another one that you can hang out with. But, yeah, I, I usually came up with the crazy idea and, and they went along with it. <laughs> it's always good if you've got followers, if you're the, the ones out the, out the front. From those years of travel and then, um, I guess for want of a better word, settling down into into life into Tasmania, did that feel like that was a settling at the time in terms of this becoming home and a space and place for um, for you as a family? You know, I, I've, I've never thought about home in terms of time frame home for me has always just been now and so wherever I am that's home I guess and maybe my upbringing created that idea of what home is so home was never a sense of oh will I be here in 10 years and so that must be home it was just is this where I feel comfortable now and that that is that is what home is but uh, I have to admit my life has been, you know, lots of change and movement, but it has been a lot more stable in the sort of last part of my life. You know, I, I've basically lived in the same city in the same uh, apartment. So it probably was something deep in me. And I'm a Torian, so I think deeply I do like nestling and, and staying put. So even though as a family we moved around a lot, uh, my domestic life has been very settled, but, you know, I've carried on moving for work and, and travelled for work. But, yeah, my sense of home is really uh, about, I guess, it's just more a sense of 
belonging, connection. And once I feel that, then then I feel I'm home. Mm, it's a beautiful reminder to kind of take take with us. You've had a, a very successful and continue to have 30-year award-winning career in journalism. What was it about journalism that pulled you in that direction? You know, I, I've never had a particular, uh, you know, plan. You know, I, I've there are things that I've done that I would say mostly I've fallen into doing. I, it hasn't been by this age I want to do that and when I finish school this is what I want to do. Even when I finished high school I didn't particularly think I wanted to be a journalist but I knew that I wanted to write, I knew I wanted to explore ideas, meet interesting people, go places. So it makes sense really that that's what, you know, journalism. But, you know, foreign affairs and, and the fo- fo- the foreign service was something I was also interested in as well. So, uh, yeah, journalism has been wonderful in terms of fulfilling all those needs into, of my creativity. Uh, and, yeah, it's provided opportunities I could never have dreamed of when I was a little kid, that's for sure. Are there areas in journalism that you are keen to either continue exploring or to discover? Are there areas where you've kind of gone, there's an expression or an outlet or a drive or a pull in in that area? Yeah. I, I really just see it more as an opportunity to tell stories. So if there's a story I want to tell, then I tell it in whichever way that may be. It could be through a book, it could be through a radio interview or a television documentary. I'm just interested in the communication of ideas, I guess, and it, it may even be just the cooking of a meal or the planting of a garden. I think it's just different ways of communicating an idea. So I don't know what's out there uh, for me, but when I come across an idea that interests me, I'm very curious. I'll hopefully just find the best way to to tell that story that communication of stories is behind your latest book a book that's been released here in in 2022 it's a book called the space between the stars the tagline being on love loss and the magical power of nature to heal it's a story that's hard to share. It's a story about your younger sister who you refer to as being star girl in the book which is just a really beautiful name. And you talk about her taking her own life and your experience of navigating that grief and trying to find healing in amongst that. Often in grief, writing and journaling, to just try and figure out how you're feeling can be a big part of that. Talk to me a little bit about the pathway of whether it was the written expression the writing for this to then become the book that it is. Talk to me a little bit about the the process or the sense of you know. Look, there's there's a story to tell or there's a, a navigation to explore here. Yeah, it was a really unusual way that this book came about, Ali. Because yes, we you know we were all in lockdown. My sister had taken her life. It was about six weeks later. I was completely bereft, overcome with grief, just in, you know, just a catatonic shock, really. I'd gone back to work. I was hosting my radio show, but, uh, you know, my audience were also going through horrific national grief. So there was just this blanket of dark, heavy grief all around me on, on every level. And because of the lockdowns, we couldn't go anywhere. So I couldn't see any family. I couldn't see any friends. I couldn't go anywhere either. So it was like it was a very oppressive version of grief uh, as well. And in the middle of all of this, I get a email out of the blue from my publisher who I've been talking to on and off for many years. We've been we talk about ideas about books that we want to do. Nothing has had really come up that we both thought, yeah, this this would work. And she said, not knowing anything that had happened, she didn't know about my sister. And she said, I think there may be a book about, if you're interested in doing it, about biophilia, this innate need that we have to connect with nature. Is that something you're interested in doing? 
And Jane, my editor, had no idea that by then I had started doing these walks into the Botanic Gardens that sit, fortunately for me, in my five-kilometre lockdown area as a way to just deal with my grief and the pain and, and also just get out in the fresh air and do some exercise. And I sort of got back to her and I said, uh, I think, yes, there is something to this. Uh, I'm doing a walk every day. It is making me feel better, largely because this terrible personal tragedy has happened in my life. So Jane was absolutely shocked and, and just had no idea. And we were able to meet up very briefly to talk about what that book may look like. And she said, do you think this is something you can actually do? Uh, she said, I, I just have no... I've never heard of someone writing a book in their grief. You know, usually it's years and years and a bit of perspective, but not as you're going through it. And I said, look, I don't know if I can do it, but all I know is that there's a need for me to write this down, get some perspective, and books and journaling is such a good way to look at your grief from a distance uh, rather than be subsumed by it. And I knew that we had so many hundreds of thousands of listeners that were struggling with their different griefs. I mean, you, they may not have lost loved ones to suicide, but they were going through isolation, not being able to see their family, loss of job, loss of, every, you know, those sorts of freedoms. So I knew that there was a need, but I just had no idea whether I could deliver it, really. So I, I literally, even though I felt I had already jumped into the abyss before this happened, I sort of leapt even deeper into it uh, because writing a book in itself, as many people would know, is an act of terrible pain and, and terrible trauma in its own. So it, it was just such a crazy thing to even contemplate really at the time. But I'm so glad I did because through writing the book, giving myself that perspective, exploring ideas, and the great thing about a book, if, if you do it in the right way, it can be almost a room. I would open a door into this room and then I would go and sit there and play and with my grief and look at it and hold it from different angles and then I could leave it, close the door and walk away, which was also quite a good process for me. So I didn't feel I had to sit with it for those hours. I wasn't in my office writing the book as well so that I knew there was a place I could go uh, in my head for that time. So it really, really helped me. And and I guess the, the, the last thing was knowing, well, not knowing how, what effect this, this would have on other people who would read the story. And we didn't know that until whatever, nine, nine, ten weeks ago when it was, the book was released, what effect that would have on other people and the grief that they had gone through. And, and that has been truly extraordinary. The hundreds and hundreds of messages that we've been getting from people who said, Thank you. I, you know, I've, you found the words to describe what I've been feeling, what, what it was like when I lost my sibling or my husband or my partner or my mother. You know, it might not have been through suicide. It might have been through cancer. So it's been an extraordinary outpouring of from readers saying that there were things about the book that really resonated for them. So I'm just so thankful for that because I know that we don't talk about our grief a lot that we don't we don't talk and share about our grief enough and what has been really good is almost that this book has given permission to people to to talk about their grief and to not feel particularly with suicide not to feel that usual sense of taboo and shame that comes with it as well so i think it's not only been healing and positive for me, but, I, you know, I really get a sense that for people who have connected with the book and readers that it's been like that for them as well. Such a, I mean, and you touched on before, writing a book is a courageous act, writing a book in the middle of grief and unknown and, and that, that sense of I'm not sure whether I can do it comes with a courageous act. And you're right, there has been... I know a lot across the last two years, just a depth of grief that people have experienced. Everything from we can't go on that family holiday, we haven't been able to cross borders, we haven't, you know, the grief and loss of the change of work and the way that we work, as well as the loss of the people that we love around us. So there's, it's a really important conversation um, and a really key one to come to. 
The you mentioned before the the phone call with your agent with your publisher that you had started those walks to the botanic gardens. Was that a conscious decision? Was that a in terms of starting to, you know, in lockdown, you've got five kilometres, this is where you can walk. Um, did that start to become a bit of a, um, a lifeline out of just the head and the space and the grief that you were in um, at that point in time? And when did you start to notice that this was a, a really key part of you working through or just facing navigating your own grief? Yeah, Almost almost within a few days of my first walk, I try to walk three or four days a week uh, in between because at being an essential worker, radio, ABC radio, I was classed that way. So I physically had to still go into the office and go into the studio at a time when there was no one else in the building. So 2,000 people had been evacuated and there was just me and my studio producers. So... It was so extreme on so many levels and we were going into, at that stage, uh, a a virus-ridden environment. No one knew where it was, what it was going to do, whether we were going to live or die from day to day. So all of this is happening at the same time. So just what an extreme time. So that walk that I would walk to the gardens, I think part of it was it was just a normal thing. You know, it was the only thing in my life that just felt like, this is just normal. I'm just walking through the gardens, looking at the trees. There's a bit of harbour, you know, between the trees. It just was so reassuring. I think that was the first sense of it. And then within a couple of days I felt, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and I couldn't wait to go down into the Botanic Gardens and I realised just being surrounded by the green and the birds and the, the licking of the water against the rock, the, the sounds and the calm uh, were just relaxing me. Uh, again, uh, you know, I'd read about this and I thought, yeah, of course, you know, I like hanging out in parks and down the beach. I find it lovely. But I didn't think in this extreme environment of suicides and pandemics and viruses that hanging out with a tree or, you know, sitting in amongst the gardens could have that sort of impact. And it did. Within a couple of days, I... I could tell the difference between my, you know, sort of heightened anxiety of, you know, what was going on. And as soon as I dipped into that greenery and into the gardens, this real calmness descended on me. And I talk about this green silence under this tree that I discovered. And after, you know, I think it was a week I discovered it and I would just sit underneath it. It was so calming because I realised... The tree was there all the time. So no matter what time of day I was there, the tree was always there. So, again, unlike all the other people in my life who had been disconnected, who were unavailable, this tree was constant and it was solid and it was there and that was so important. And the other thing that was important was that it would never ask me any questions. It would never say, so how are you doing? What's the Which can also be very difficult when you're going through grief because you're trying to work that out yourself. And it can, even though people are being very kind and generous by asking, sometimes you just don't want to be asked. You just want to sit quietly. And the great thing about a tree is that's what it does. It just sits there with you. It doesn't ask you any questions. And I think also... It can be quite difficult for people uh, around people who are going through grief because you don't know what to say and you're afraid of saying the wrong thing and uh, sometimes you just need to sit quietly with someone, uh, which is which is a thing I've learnt as well. Like I'm so much better with helping other people now in their grief because I know it's it's just about being present. That's that's really what most people require when they're going through grief. They don't need you to fix it or tell them what the solution is or anything like that. Just sit quietly. And a tree obviously just knows that innately. So this tree, this Morton Bay fig tree uh, that I, you know, discovered, I think because I really did feel it was it was speaking to me. And it was the one when I was telling it quietly about this book I was writing and, and what a mad idea it was. And I did, couldn't start it. It was it just kept on blocking and blocking. And every time I said my sister's name, Monica, or tried to write the words, 
I would feel this this terrible rising of, you know, grief and I just couldn't carry on. And I was sitting under the tree this one day and it said to me, well, don't say her name then if that's too difficult. Um, call her another name. And it was under this tree that the name Stargirl came to me and that is what I called her through the book and my other sister I called Dreamcatcher. And when that happened, the book just flowed and I was able to, to tell the story. And bit by bit, every day I'd come and sit and visit the tree, it was so calming and so relaxing to be with the tree that I started to notice all the other bits of life around the tree. And I think that was also an important stage to go through because when you're human and when you're going through grief, you think it's all about you. Everything that's going on is all about you. And what the tree was reminding me of is that there were bees and there were birds and there were ants and there was all these other parts of nature that were just ticking over and rolling over as they always do. And I was just a part of the bigger picture of nature. And it reminded me to put myself back into nature, not put myself, be separate from it, which was also very comforting because... The sun always rose every day. The moon was there in the evenings. Uh, gravity stayed the same. You know, even though I thought this huge rip in my universe had happened, in reality, the big picture hadn't really changed at all. And the tree kept reminding me that this was just the cycle of life, you know, death and birth and renewal and the feathers that fell off the birds and the leaves off the trees were all part of the same thing. And I was born and I would return to the earth in the same way, which, again, I found very, very comforting. And it made me realise that what I was going through, lots of people go through, lots of creatures going, go through it all the time. And uh, that is just the nature of life, life and death. They're all part of the same thing. And there's a liberation, almost kind of a letting go that can happen that sits in that realisation. The the fig tree that that you talk about, and I know that you've shared photos of the fig tree in the Sydney Botanic Gardens and those that are reading the book are starting to share your tree. But it's there in our anger, it's there in our upset, it's there in our in our joys and in the moments. It would just kind of hold space, which is which is really powerful as well. And I love that connection to nature. Even as you were talking, I was remembering my um, dear mother passed away years ago now and, and in that really kind of tight grief, I almost remember getting so frustrated that the sky was still blue and the grass was still green because it just felt like, you know, your world's just changed so completely and how can these things still be the same and yet I agree I think there's a solace there's a comfort in oh that's okay that that's that's unshakable um in amongst the the things that can kind of shake our world you throughout the book you talk about almost going through your own discovery and connection with nature and with some really unique parts of nature. You you invite experts in their field and you spend time with them. And I'd love to touch on a number of those. The very first one was stargazing, having – and I can't remember the fellow's name. It's Phil, just escaped Phil me now. Phil. Yeah. Yeah, who came and um, brought his telescope and really navigated some of the stars with you. Can you remember and talk to me a little bit about what that experience with Phil was like? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I think I can't remember what stage of lockdown had just been lifted so you could visit other people's homes. So Phil was just so generous. You know, I, I contacted him out of the blue, didn't know me, and he said he would help. Um, show me the stars and and bring his very highfalutin telescope and set it up on my balcony. And because I live in Potts Point, right up against all the um, skyscrapers of the CBD, I just assumed I couldn't see any stars because of the light pollution. But he said, no, you should be able to see on a clear night about 12 or 13 really interesting stars and planets and nebula. And I went, okay, great. And so he set it up. And, of course, I've looked at the, the stars through a stellar telescope before and I was fascinated, absolutely fascinated by them when I was a child. 
And again, over the years that I, I don't know why, but I've just, you know, lost touch with that. And that awe and wonder as well. I, I couldn't remember the last time in the city I looked up and looked at the, at the sky to see what stars I could see. So that night when Phil started showing me all these stars and it was so beautiful, especially because we were largely confined to our homes still and to be reminded that here I was thinking I'm trapped at home. But with this telescope, I could see I wasn't trapped at all. I had this magical wilderness in the sky to explore and it gave me a sense of bigness and openness and, and wow, I, I had all this space and I've always had all this space up there but I've never noticed it or appreciated it. And we saw so many different colours, you know, planets that were bright red that had you know, shimmering orange coronas and um, beautiful nebulae that had bright green tentacles coming out of them and and then moving satellites through the sky and just seeing how the moon would change colour and form as it moved as well because we did it for about four or five hours. And it was was just like taking a a trip in the sky, like a big sky space adventure. Uh, And I really felt after that night that I had travelled physically, not just looking, that my body had gone somewhere too on this magical adventure. And because I'd been calling my sister in the book Star Girl, it had made me think of stars anyway because of that. And she was a star in our life. And here I was looking at real stars and also trying to picture where you go when you die. Where does that energy go I looked at all the stars and realised that some of them that I was looking at that looked bright and big and shimmery would have died millions of years ago, some of them, and exploded, but I was still seeing their light even though they had died. And there were all these analogies that started coming from the experience and I realised just because my sister had died, it didn't necessarily snuff out her light. And I found those those ideas very comforting and understanding that what is energy? We are all parts of matter and we're changing shape all the time and there isn't really a sense of an end. We just change energy into some other form and and then come back into another form as well. Uh, And again, the stars, not only their own beauty and their own perfection, I mean, there's an amazing perfection in the harmony of what is created by planets and stars, how how they are suspended up there, and then all the the cycles that happen on our planet that they control, uh, the movement of the moon and the sun, and where it just started to blow my mind away suddenly that, you know, wow, that here I am thinking as a human I'm pretty big, but really looking at all these planets, you realise, no, 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 that you are so insignificant but in a beautiful way that, you know, I'm just a tiny little part of this much bigger orchestrated, um, you know, universe. And, yeah, when I, f- when I finished that night of stargazing, not only did I feel close to my sister, which was um, amazing because she could be eons and planets and nebulae and galaxies away, so not really close in any sort of physical sense, but, you know, metaphysically I felt much closer to her and again that hugeness the vastness the bigger picture was I was reminded of and again that made me feel very um I don't know part of something so beautiful you know that I'd never really understood before is this where the title of the book came from as well yeah yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different ways to look at it, and I really wanted readers just to interpret it as, as whichever way they 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 wanted to. But yeah, one of the things we often I remember saying to Phil, you know, that I what about those gaps between the stars? Are we looking at those? And he goes, What do you mean? There's nothing there. It's just black. And one of the things I was understanding when we were looking at the stars is that, yes, with my naked eye, I would see a bit of darkness between two bright objects. But then when we focused the microscope there, the um, telescope, I would start seeing the light. So I just 
couldn't see them with my naked eye, but with the telescope, I could. And so I understood that just because we immediately think that's darkness, there is actually light there. We just can't see it yet. You know, we just don't know how to look. Um, and so that was also, a, for me, a very comforting way to look at darkness is that it's not the way you see it. If you look more closely and deeply, that you will become more aware of the light. You just can't see it right now. Such a, a, a beautiful concept and a m- reminder. I loved where, so from Phil, you started to take other adventures and explorations and some of the areas into nature are probably not ones that maybe people listening would have obviously thought. One of those was spending time with Kate and looking at feathers. Mm-hmm. What was it about feathers and, and what did you learn through, I guess, feather hunting with Kate? Well, one of the things, Ali, that started to happen, when you only have a small area to explore, you really look for the first time ever, I think, every crack in the footpath and and every piece of tarmac and the poles, every tree, every weed suddenly became my whole world. And I looked and noticed and was still with it in a way that I appreciated just every little bit, every bit of moss. And I got to know it like the back of my hand and, um, you know, look forward to seeing what was happening on that slab of sandstone, if there was going to be a new bit of lichen, would the rain have left a little puddle in, in one of their, you know, indentations. And I really loved that here I was thinking I'd been restricted during lockdowns in this small space. But in fact, the opposite had happened. It had opened up my world because I was really seeing and really noticing. And one of those things that I would see a lot of, and I never noticed them before, were feathers. I started seeing hundreds and hundreds of feathers. And I thought, why have I never noticed feathers? When I was a kid, I loved feathers. I collected them. I had a shoebox off them under my bed. And I was always annoying everyone by stopping, you know, and picking up a feather and blowing on it and playing with it and dawdling all the time. I was always distracted by feathers. And again, that that stopped when I became an adult. So that was one thing that I thought, I want to know more about feathers. Where do these feathers come from? How, why do birds lose them? Uh, do that, does it hurt, you know, when they lose a feather? I didn't really know that much about feathers. And so Kate Brandis, who I talked to my, on my radio show about, about a feather project that she'd run uh, a couple of years before, she, uh, yeah, agreed to meet me and do a little feather hunt to my tree. And uh, we collected lots of feathers and she explained what a feather is, how it, how it works, what it provides birds, and they are the most extraordinary creations. And, again, we take them for granted. We step over them when we're running to work or catching the bus and they're such extraordinary pieces of creations by nature. And the thing that really struck me about a feather is if you look at it and you think that's just keratin, it's basically what our hair is made of, and it's soft and it's it's light. But when you look at what it does for a bird, you know, so it keeps them warm it uh, protects them from the rain and most importantly it helps them fly and so this soft downy sort of feather is actually incredibly strong it's it's armor it's a shield it's a protection but it looks so soft you know and again I started to see the parallels between the way I was feeling and the strength that was in this feather that for me seemed to have more strength than I felt at the time. But it really wasn't made out of steel or anything hard. It was made out of just the same elements I've got in my body as well. So if a feather can be so soft but be so strong and resilient, maybe I've got that in me as well. You know, there's nothing supernatural about what a feather is. I've, I've got it too. Mm. So, again, that little beautiful piece of nature was teaching me about my own resilience and where I could find my own strength. And that just because I was, you know, going through a fracture and I was experiencing, you know, a bruise, uh, be proud of it and hold it proudly, you know, like like those feathers do. The bits that are bent and torn, whatever, the bird can still get on and, and uh, you know, 
wash wash away the grime and fly and it would still be strong. It can be repaired as well. So, yeah, I, I was learning all these things just from those little feathers that we would come across. Incredible in the and even that connection of what we can see and what we can learn and how our worlds open up when you describe this time which felt so restrictive and yet mm. such exploration in that in that space. I think one of the things I, I found and, and continue to find so divine in your book is those little kind of insights and curiosities and kind of lessons along the way. You spend a chapter with Diego trying to find edible weeds all throughout the city and you even just describe having the time to to play and, the, and I think the sentence I've got here is play can only happen when you escape the grip of time and that's just yeah. a powerful reminder in a busy or overwhelmed or uncertain kind of time is, is to, to pause and take the time. I want to take us to the sky and to clouds. So you'd spent time with Branka and again in there there's a sentence where you talk about beauty in nature exists to make us feel better. What did you learn about clouds or what was it that kind of drew you to want to spend time with Branka and find out a bit more about um, clouds in our world? Well I guess Ali it was part of the the stargazing and I realised that humans do tend to be ground dwellers and we focus on the earth and the ground and because we can't fly like birds we we think that that's another place that we don't have access to so I started just looking at the sky a lot more than I normally would and during the day and of course clouds and again it was a thing I used to love doing as a kid just lying on my back for hours watching clouds morph into all these different shapes and seeing what I could see and what shape was now. And I knew so much about clouds, you know, cirrus and strata and cumulus, cumulonimbus. I had charts on my and posters on my wall. Again, uh, as I became an adult, got disconnected from that love and joy of clouds. So, yeah, I, I sort of refound that joy and um, randomly started, you know, did a Google search who could talk to me about clouds and the shape of things and how much of this is really designed and, and designed to make to make us think it is beautiful. Uh, and I came across Branka Spears' work and her research is so fascinating because she found that it doesn't matter what bits of nature we look at, a sunset or a tree or a creek, no matter what cultural background we're from, what our experience has been, all humans generally find exactly the same thing in nature beautiful. And it's only man-made interpretations of nature, like a painting or a sculpture, that we will disagree on and think, oh, that's a good painting or that's a bad sculpture. But when it comes to a sunset, if you just show a whole lot of humans from different walks of life a sunset, you're not going to find someone there going, yeah, I've seen better sunsets. No, I don't, that, so I don't true. like that. <laughs> we all go, wow, we all do. And that actually fascinated me. Why is it? Why is it that a sunset can have the same effect on everyone? And Branka, basically her research, and it, and it goes against the usual scientific um, sort of um, establishment she believes nature has been designed to be beautiful for us for us to find it beautiful because we are part of nature and nature wants us to live and grow and thrive and reproduce and and feel happy and comfortable and if you look at all parts of nature birds think their world is stunning and they they love how they live and birds nests and trees and fish and water and fish do as well I mean there was no part of nature that I started connecting with that I didn't think, wow, you'll really love your world. They all love their world. And we're one of these really unusual creatures that have become so disconnected from nature, even though we live parallel to it every day, that we see these nature's constantly throwing these in our face. It's throwing us the most beautiful sunsets, the clouds, the shapes of trees, the formations and the arcs and the softness of things. And we're constantly saying, nah, I'd rather have some hard concrete and metal poles well, and social tarmac. media. <laughs> Why? Because we don't find it beautiful. As soon as we get an opportunity for a holiday or a break, no one says, as I say in the book, I'm going to, you know, 
pitch a tent in the middle of the the freeway, we all want to go to a lake or a beach or a forest. Why? Why are we fleeing what we created if it isn't beautiful? It doesn't make sense. I mean, it is the more Branker and I spent time lying on the grass looking at clouds and after our last session, I, I was actually in pain. I didn't want to walk into my concrete building oh. that I lived in because I just thought, why? Why, we, why do we live like that where I could live in a beautiful hobbit's house with lots of curves and thatch roofs and made out of lovely tactile clay and, you know, why have we created a world that we're running away from, you know, when we've got this natural habitat right around us that is being created for us to love and we do love it. We just don't stop. We're not still enough to really think about it because it's so confronting, you know. Um, so Branker really opened me up to that. And because of that, now every time I see all those little knobbly bits on tree trunks and all the waves and clouds, they're all the same fractal forms but they are just in different shapes. But the same pattern of large becoming smaller, large becoming smaller, reducing, reducing, happens in every part of nature. And we find it a very comforting pattern as well. And nature moves. I'm, I'm just looking out onto some beautiful forest here on, on the outskirts of Barrel. And every, the wind's going through all the trees and there's just this shimmer all around me and a little wave and a little movement. And compared to the concrete um, balcony that I'm, I'm looking through, which is just solid and immovable, that's not relaxing to look at at all. But that little shimmer just in the distance is just so beautiful and calming. And that's what we need as humans. We like a little bit of movement so that we're occupied but not too many jarring movements because then that stresses us. And anything that's solid and doesn't move, we also find stressful. So, again... Yeah, why do we just like looking at sunsets changing colour or clouds changing form or a creek moving, you know, down a, a, a riverbed? It's because it's been designed to, to please us, to, to, to give us beauty. I mean, it's, it's so simple, but it's also so profound. Hugely profound and it's a, it's a perspective I will take forward because if you've got that belief then your desire to go out and be in it and absorb it and see it. And I know for weeks after reading your book, noticing the movement in nature um, became really profound for me to notice that really subtle, gentle, calming movement that is, is constantly there but it moves at a pace that is calming, that is connected, that speaks to the change that we are like uh, for us as in our own bodies and in our own lives that change is, is constant it's not structured and rigid uh, so I remember that being really profound just noticing the water the wind the leaves the rustles the mm. birds the gentle movement is constant everywhere in nature and you go on around edible flowers, gardening, um, sp spending time with AJ and ants. But I want to go to puddles. Puddles, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and your expert who showed you puddles, Abby. <laughs> and you, you again weave in this kind of cross-pollination between grief and puddles. Talk to me a little bit about puddle jumping. Yeah. So a really important part for me of my healing process through my grief was seeing a grief counsellor. So I saw Wendy, I have been seeing it for the last two years, and uh, what a beautiful soul she is and also what an important thing it is to have a safe place where you can share your grief and talk about your grief. And one of the concepts that came up during one of our sessions was this idea that I was finding difficult was there'd be one moment in my morning I'd be perfectly fine. I'd just be chatting to my colleagues at work and carrying on and doing everything, about to go into the studio to record an interview, and then suddenly I'd feel this heaviness would descend on me and then I'd just quiet, go quiet and just shut down almost. And, it, and I didn't see it coming. I didn't know what had caused it. And I'd sit like that not even understanding what that feeling was. And then maybe 10 minutes later, it would leave me and then I could carry on. 
And I was saying to Wendy, what is this? It's really, really disturbing, you know, how it sort of goes in and out and in and out. And she said, well, that's the nature of grief. Grief isn't this linear line where one day you're this much in grief, the next day a little bit less, and then the next day a little bit less. It just goes up and down, in and out. It it doesn't have a pattern at all. It's quite random. And uh, and she said one of the terms uh, used to describe this is puddle uh, jumping because it's often children that exhibit this form of grief where one moment they're happy and up and the next moment they're really down and flat, uh, just like how you jump in and out of puddles. And so it got me thinking because I'd been noticing again uh, during my walks especially after rain, that all these little puddles would form along the footpaths and the cracks. And and I would notice, you know, uh, little birds um, drinking out of them or washing their feathers. And they became these extraordinary little gathering points, these water holes in, in my urban life, where a lot of life would happen in a puddle. And then I would see things that looked like little grains or seed pods and sometimes little bubbles, maybe they were, you know, tadpoles or worms under there as well. And I thought, wow, these are amazing um, receptacles of life that normally I'd just stomped through, again, rushing on my way to work. So I thought, why don't I have a day of just exploring puddles and seeing if, yes, there was a term for Um, jumping in and out of puddles, grief connected, but could it be more than just a metaphor for grief? Could it actually be a cure for it? So I took my granddaughter, Abby, who was eight years old at the time, who when I was doing research to find the perfect um, expert to take, and there were quite a few experts that study puddles, and I realised that um, Abby, who had always talked about puddles and jumping in puddles and when we'd go for walks she had to jump in a puddle so I knew she loved puddles so I thought no she's going to be the perfect person to go puddle jumping with um so we went I just bought her some new gumboots for the expedition and we went puddle jumping again taking the path to my tree in the gardens and it was just probably one of the most extraordinary experiences I've ever had because I just surrendered to an eight-year-old girl, which we don't often do, and just let her run the day, basically. You tell me where we go and what we do. And and she decided everything about the day. And she found the puddles and I said to her, how do you know what's a good puddle? And she said, oh, it's very important. It has to be just deep enough so it gives a good splash, but it can't be too deep so it gets into your boots. You know, it's all scientific. So she knew everything about puddles, how to find the right one, and we did this beautiful jump in the first puddle and I still remember that sensation of jumping in the puddle and then it was a beautiful blue sky and really bright, um, shiny day and the arc of droplets as we jumped in, you know, shot up into the sky and then watching them all fall back down to earth. And this time they seemed to fall back as drops of sunshine, just pure sunshine. And each one of those droplets just was just so beautiful. And Abby had already decided to go and find the next puddle to conquer. And I just remember staying put where I'd landed in the puddle, just so overcome by joy, but also overcome by um, by a sorrow as well because I was in the moment of the joy but also realising, you know, the loss and the pain and the grief that, that it was also, you know, sort of um, sitting with it at the same time and realising that this simple act of jumping in a puddle with my granddaughter um, was one of the most beautiful things that I could do to help heal my grief and, um, you know, just infectious company that an eight-year-old uh, can be. Of course, they, they sometimes they can't be as well, but um, they, they just have this sense of, you know, there were no questions about why I wanted to jump puddles with Abby and um, she just understood that this was a fun thing to do. Why wouldn't I want to do it, you know? And she gave me this lovely lecture about how adults, you know, it's really frustrating how they stop jumping in puddles and they don't see puddles and it's because they're too busy and too busy with their boring jobs. And there was this lovely line where she goes, 
I don't know about you, Dee Dee, but so many adults hate their jobs, you know. And uh, she said, you know, they have boring jobs like plumbers. And I just started laughing and laughing when she said that. She goes, why are you laughing? And I said, oh, I can't explain it to you, but I'm assuming you're not going to want to be a plumber when you grow up, you know. But obviously for an eight-year-old girl, being a plumber was just, why would you so go boring. lying on your back <laughs> under a toilet? Who would want to do that, right? But it was just so sweet because I thought, yeah, nothing's stopping me from jumping in puddles any day I want and it's so joyous so why have I stopped doing it Mm. you know and it's free it's good fun uh and I I do stomp in puddles I go out of my way now and I don't think about the dirt and getting my shoes wet or any of that boring stuff I just think Think about the joy, the fun of that splash, you know. The And the expert, Abby, who would be proud of every splash you make. I um, Even the thread where you talk about that, that combination of pure joy and sorrow at the same time, I think often we think they, they don't coexist and yet it's, you know, part of the connection to nature is that acceptance that, that joy and sorrow come together. Yeah. There's a beautiful Irish poet called David White. I was just reading some of his um, writing and he talks about the conversation. Life is a conversation between grief and celebration. And I'd never understood that until I'd gone through this very big grief in my life is that we just look for the celebration and hang on to that and we pretend the grief isn't happening and push it down. But grief and celebration are partners walking with us every day of our lives and that is natural and that is normal and that is to be expected. And we get out of balance if we try to pretend the grief's never going to happen, there's never going to be losses, and uh, that is part of life. And I think the acceptance of that, that one day will be there'll be some grief but there'll be some celebration as well, that it's hand in hand and there is balance, you know. And I think by pretending it's not there, by not addressing it, by not sharing it, by not talking about it, is when it becomes heavy, when it we put it into the bag of shadows I talk about, and then it does take on a bigger weight than it needs to, and it, and it can cause lots of other problems in our life. But if we walk with it openly and basically open-armed with the grief and the celebration sitting there, I think that it's an acceptance of what life truly looks like, not not the pretend life, not the artificial life that we've created, but true life is, is grief and celebration. And as I say in the book, you can't grieve unless you have loved and the size of your grief is really just a reflection of the size of, of your love and, so, and loving is a good thing. So I'm not scared of grief in the way that I was before I went through this. Um, it, it's difficult, there's no doubt about it, but the growth that you can go through after the healing is is pretty amazing and the insights that it can give you and the insights into other people and other ways of being, other ways to live uh, are really important, you know. I, I think it is, I know it's it's hard. We don't want to go through grief and you wouldn't wish grief on other people, but it is part of what we're here to learn. David White is one of my all-time favourites. I love his work. Oh, really? It's just beautiful, profound and so insightful the way that he can take the complex and, and find a way that's an invitation. Yeah, it's beautiful. Since penning this book, what are some of those growth or the lessons that at the moment that you are currently taking forward? It's sort of difficult way to even I'm still trying to work out how to find the words for it because it's at this stage it's 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 a feeling but this feeling that I'm traveling through life which I always have nothing's really changed in that sense but I think before I felt I was more permanent here and this was the life whereas now I've got a different sense that this is just part of the journey and and I don't know what was before I don't know what will be after so and I don't know what forms they will take what form I will take either so that has made me feel quite excited excited about what the other journeys are going to be like because this life is pretty amazing I mean 
it's been a great life so far and I'm sure it's going to carry on being a great life. And there's so much privilege in it and there is so much beauty and I'm seeing the beauty much more than I think I ever have before. Much more gratitude to every day and every experience. So it's it's made me feel more enlivened, which I wouldn't have thought a grief and a death could have that effect on you. And less scared, I guess. Less scared. Less scared about any other deaths that might happen, any other griefs, my own death as well. There isn't the same amount of fear. I have a sense that like this, yes, it's difficult and I've had to grow and I've I've had to go through some pain, but I've I've survived it. So it's given me a, a real sense of my own resilience and that the resilience that we all have in us that is much deeper than we realise. So that gives you a sense of, um, wow, you know, got through that. And so you feel much stronger about things and much more capable rather than this uh, vulnerable um, self. But also being strong, it's changed my sense of what that actually is. It's not meeting everything with a shield or a or a blade or a, a sword or anything. It's actually surrendering. It's it's actually opening and letting the light in, you know, all, all those bits of nature, the seed pods cracking and letting light through, the cracks and the, the weeds in the cracks. All those bits of nature are, are actually, um, you know, the trees are obviously very strong, but most of the other bits of nature were, were small and vulnerable, it's much more small and vulnerable than me. But they didn't lead, they still lead, led very courageous lives. They just got on crossing roads and things, even though they were going to be stomped on or the ants just carried on their path, uh, even though it was, must be incredibly dangerous to, to cross the paths they did. They didn't stop. They just carried on, you know. There was this real courage. So being small, being vulnerable, um, and you just doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be hurt or damaged or, you know, you've got to just keep doing and living and being uh, and surrendering to it. Uh, and, yeah, and nature's the guide. Nature shows you all the ways to be and all the ways to just appreciate you know, everything that's around. You know, you don't you don't need any more than what we've been given. You know, the air's been given to us for free, the oxygen, the sunlight, the water. It's only humans that have then commodified these things and... and made them transactional things. But really everything we need has already been given to us for free. So that's a pretty mind-blowing thing. So it's about how to get rid of all the extra stuff that we've put in the way and just stay connected to all that beauty that's free. I mean, we don't need anything else. I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple life that we've made very complicated. <laughs> we have, we have. And it's almost about kind of stripping it, stripping it back and coming back to what do we really need? The the moments of joy that can sit in that and that reconnection, mm. that invitation back to to nature. The book, The Space Between the Stars, is is just stunningly written. And it is an invitation to to reconnect with nature and to take whatever it is you're going through. It doesn't matter what it is. Nature will be okay with it. Yep. You don't have to sort yourself out before before sitting with nature. Nature will absolutely be okay with it. Indira, I've loved this conversation. One final question. The name of this podcast is called Stand Out Life. You might have summarised some of it in your last answer, but when you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Being authentic, I think. You know, I, I think that finding your purpose is what life is all about. Finding what your creativity is and using that to help others, you know, to find your purpose. And I think that that can be quite difficult for a lot of people, but nature shows you, you know, a tree does what a tree does, an ant does what an ant does, a bird does what a bird does. It's, you know, a bird doesn't go, look, I want to be a racing car driver. You know, it knows that this is what 
it should be. That was what it was born to do and that's what it does. Humans make it really complicated, you know, uh, and I think that when you're with nature, you see very clearly who you are, what you are, how you should be and what gives you joy. And if anything is giving you anxiety, well, then this isn't what you should have in your life. I mean, it's it's pretty clear. So for me, it's about finding your purpose and, yeah, using that creativity to, to help others um, that, that is the way to finding your purpose, finding meaning in your life. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Indira. I've loved this conversation. Thanks, Ellie. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.